Hey guys, my name is Alex, and this is the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I had my notebook out at a bar a few weeks ago, and I was just kind of free writing, and I ended up writing about this this long-held conviction that I have. At every bar where I'm a regular, there's a part of me that really sincerely thinks that the bartenders all secretly dread the sight of me. Especially if it's one of these places where I, I, like I talk to the bartenders because I feel comfortable enough, I've been there enough. Um, I feel like they see me walk in the door and they think, fuck, 20 questions, here it comes. But then at a certain point in writing all this, I thought, fuck, what if I, what if I forget this notebook here? by accident, and they read this entry. Then, they will probably think that I left it here on purpose so that they will know I don't feel welcome and that this is my weird way of, like, getting them to be extra nice to me. So I tell myself, okay, keep writing, but let's change the subject. So I scratch out that angsty little paragraph, and then I sort of poise my pen to keep going to start riffing on some different train of thought, but nothing comes to mind. So I start asking myself, okay, uh, what have I done in the past couple days? Who have I spoken to? What have I watched? What have I listened to or read? And there was nothing. Just absolutely nothing came to mind. And I thought, fuck, seriously? How is, there, how is there nothing on my mind? And I start giving myself shit for not leading the sort of life whereby I'm, I'm keeping myself so perpetually stimulated and you know, asking myself heavy questions. I'm, what I'm doing at the moment then is I'm beating myself up for the fact that my brain isn't always just a brim with like urgent, interesting shit just waiting to be discussed and ex- unpacked, whatever. It had been on my mind for a while at that point, mainly because of a book that I had just checked out from the library a few days prior. It's a kind of uh, philosophical art book by Umberto Eco, and it's called On Ugliness. In the book, he explores various visual, spiritual, and moral manifestations of ugliness in art. Like, for instance, he says, uh, when you are captivated by a photo of war, or of illness, or of a car wreck, something generally unpleasant to look at. The question to ask ourselves is, are we looking at a beautiful depiction of an ugly thing or an ugly depiction of a beautiful thing? Another one, he talks about how there was once an issue amongst religious painters uh, about whether the sort of graphic depiction of Christ and his injuries, um, is that, is it gruesome and maybe even blasphemous because, you know, it emphasizes the flesh and Christ's mortality over his godly powers? Or should we take the position that the graphic depiction of Christ's suffering is beautiful in the way that it communicates the enormity and the horror of his sacrifice? Echo also cites an old theologian who says that a painting of the devil can be considered beautiful if it is accurate in its portrayal of his ugliness. It's wonderful, thought-provoking stuff. I've been learning a lot from reading the book and feeling very good and, like, enriched by it. But what's commanding most of my attention as I inch my way through it is how the book highlights the breadth of Umberto Eco's reading. Eco, again, is, is the author. All through the book, on every page, he is invoking and excerpting all of these artists and philosophers and historians, these theologians, these scholars. And granted, Eco was in his 70s when he wrote this, and he was, you know, he was bringing a lifetime's reading to the task. I should not be comparing the scope of my own reading to that of a 70-year-old academic, but that's how I do things. And so here at the bar with my notebook, I'm two beers deep into the evening and stressing now about the idea that I need to to be more rounded, that this, it is unacceptable for me, even while half drunk, to not have some serious thought-provoking shit right on the tip of my tongue. And I start telling myself, I need to become more rounded, I need to become more, whatever, complicated, learned, 
But then the question is, how exactly do I go about making that happen? Well, the the New Yorker magazine has always had this huge intellect like image of intellectual clout in my mind, and uh, I've always thought of it as like the bastion of great journalism and critical thought. The New Yorker, I've always figured, is what smart people read. Now, I'm already subscribed to The New Yorker, and it's already a long-established part of my Sunday morning ritual that I take it with me to Passion del Cielo on Brickle, and I read from it. This Sunday, however, I'm on a mission. I need to enrich myself, so I won't just be reading from The New Yorker, I will be reading all of The New Yorker, because I have to get smart and I have to do it quickly. It takes me just under three hours, skipping the first dozen odd pages about, you know, the goings-on about town, but at the end of those three hours, I feel enriched. I feel learned, I feel nuanced, I feel up-to-date, I feel complicated. Now, the obvious downside is that I've taken three hours that could have been spent on Thousand Movie Project. I, I could have been finishing some urgent tasks. I could have watched, you know, a movie and a half or two movies. And I have di instead diverted that time toward reading even the passages of The New Yorker that don't interest me. But whatever, it's done, and now I am enriched. After reading the magazine, I finish a handful of tasks pertaining to the project, and then, at around 4 p.m., I leave Passion del Cielo, and I go to the bar. I grab myself a beer, I pull out a notebook, I start scribbling some self-congratulatory en entry about having read the entirety of The New Yorker. This is great, it's my first time ever doing it, good for me. And so there, over the notebook, I start trying to recount onto the page all of the oodles of shit that I learned this morning by reading The New Yorker cover to cover, but suddenly I can't remember critical details of what I read. I know there, there was a... There was a long piece about Samantha Power, who is one of Obama's foreign affairs consultants, and there was a long piece about toxic fan culture. Um, I, I learned that Gaddafi was, quote, sodomized with a blade when he was ha found hiding in some kind of storm pipe. But, but what else? What, what else was there? Uh, apparently the word Stan, I learned, is um, is short for stalker fan, and, and it comes from the Eminem song of the same name. But that's, that's all I seem to remember. And what, what the fuck? I, I just read the entire New Yorker, like, including the short story about, well, you know, some Bulgarian writer retreat. Where did it go? I, I, I just had this shit in my head. And I remember this used to be the reason that I would have to, like, study, study, study before a science or a math exam in college. And then, like, you study endlessly and then you take the test and then immediately it all leaves your head. But I always thought that the reason that all that information was leaking out of my head as quickly as I put it into my head was because I, I wasn't interested. It was because I would rather have been putting my dick in a toaster than thinking about then uh, you know integers or rock formations or whatever the fuck but that was then that was in college that was stuff that i didn't care about i would have thought that i would be able to return to retain now as an adult at least the shit that i'm interested in i did the reading with the new yorker i was studious and thorough and i was making notes in the margins of the magazine the whole time i was drinking espresso and feeling sharp and lucid and now i go into my head three hours later and it's not there and this sounds so absurd, but I start thinking, like, how am I ever, even in my 70s, going to be, you know, an intellectual of something even approaching Umberto Eco's caliber if I can spend a whole morning reading 60-odd pages of brilliant, incisive journalism, only to find that, you know, three hours later, I've forgotten virtually everything except for one offhand remark about somebody getting butt-fucked with a knife. It's frustrating and defeating, but, you know, the day goes on. And so does the next one. And the next one. And the next one. A new issue of The New Yorker shows up in my mailbox, and later that day, I read a big chunk of it, and I make notes, and I underline, and I stroke my beard, and I close my eyes, and I think really hard about everything I've learned, and then I go to bed, and in the morning, I can remember nothing. A few days after that, there's a new issue of The New Yorker in my mailbox. I bring it upstairs, I read it, 
I forget it. After three weeks of assiduous reading of this mind-fuckingly enriching and, and wonderful magazine, what has changed? How do I measure whether I am a smarter or better person because of it? Well, I don't. I can't. If there's one verdict, however, that I can settle upon with confidence at the end of these three weeks, it's this. I fucking love The New Yorker. Those hours of eye-strained reading that I once embarked upon as a kind of intellectual get-rich-quick scheme, thinking I would suddenly be this riveting person at the end of each issue, now it's just, it's a, a source of legitimate joy. In high school, I had a history teacher named David Delbarone, and he would tell us that if we just kept the New York Times website as the opening page on our browser, we would at least see the headlines of the day while we were on our way to Facebook. This meant that we would at least be aware of the big shit that's going on in the world. Well, I took his advice and I set my homepage to the New York Times and it really did pay off several times. There were occasions where I would be in conversation with people who were smarter than me and more mindful of current events. Someone would mention a current event and I would have read some headlines about it and I would be able to contribute to the conversation. So maybe there is some kind of gradual retention of things. I don't even realize I'm picking it up. In my freshman year of high school, I was in a journalism class and absolutely smitten by this girl in there named Chelsea, who is super studious, super smart, absolutely gorgeous. I, I think she's actually gone on... I know she went to med school. She might actually be a doctor at this point. Anyway, Chelsea excelled at seemingly all things academic, in a, albeit in a quiet way. And I was super smitten by her, but obviously intimidated, you know, by the intelligence, the roundedness, the ambition. She also seemed to keep a decidedly cooler company than I did. Nonetheless, I tried tried th thinking of ways that I could get her attention. So when, for instance, I saw at one point that she was reading two novels in a row by Tess Gerritsen, I decided uh, to read those two novels, thinking, shit, now, yeah, now I'll have something to talk to her about. So I went to a used bookstore that was then in the area called the, the Kendall Bookshelf, and I bought the books, I read them both, and then I never brought it up to her. I spent two weeks immersed in these books thinking, fuck yeah, I'll have something to talk to her about. And then I finished the books and I saw her in class and I was like, fuck no, girls are scary. Then uh, during one of our class discussions, we were talking about newspaper layouts. And um, Chelsea raises her hand and she says, you know, I notice every morning in the Miami Herald, and blah, blah, blah. And she goes on with her observation. But I think she could kind of feel the collective blank-faced blinking of classmates who never read the newspaper and who maybe kind of resented her for doing something so decidedly adult and making the rest of us look like children. And I remember that as she was talking, she was kind of dampening her question down, like kind of squashing it into self-conscious oblivion as she was giving voice to it. It's hard to, it's hard to describe, but um, it, it, it was like she was simultaneously making an observation and rescinding it. But, seeing another opportunity to read my way into a woman's good graces, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm gonna read the newspaper. She seems to be isolated in the fact that she reads the newspaper. I'm going to read the newspaper every day for the rest of my life, and now we will have endless things to talk about. My family got the Miami Herald delivered to our house when I was growing up, so I had access to it. And it was also the case that all through high school, I would wake up um, at 5 a.m. when the house was still quiet, and I would eat Fruity Pebbles, and I would watch The Cosby Show. However, now, knowing that Chelsea read the Miami Herald every morning, you know, intimidating as it seemed, I decided I was going to read it right along with her. So, at 5 a.m., I turned off the house's alarm, and I went outside, I got the dew-dappled newspaper, took it to the kitchen, set the Cosby show to a lower volume than usual, and I started to read. I think this was 2005. Bush was president, and he was in the process of appointing Sonia Sotomayor to the Supreme Court. So I opened the newspaper, and I remember seeing her face in a little box on the front page that morning, and knowing that I had seen her face in the news before, although I hadn't totally understood the context. So I read that first article, which was about some of the blowback that Bush was was getting and trying to appoint her, and I was surprised to find that I kind of understood it, or I thought I understood it. Later that day at school, I go up to the journalism teacher, 
I think her name was Miss Miller, and I told her that I was trying to start reading the newspaper every morning. I remember I was very coy about telling her I was reading a newspaper. I didn't want to say that I was reading the Miami Herald because I was afraid that she would remember that Chelsea reads the Miami Herald every morning and that I would be like, hey, Miss Miller, I'm reading the Herald every day. And she would be like, Alex, Chelsea's out of your league. But anyway, I tell her about reading a newspaper in the morning, and um, I told her that I don't—I wasn't sure I was smart enough, uh, that I was worried that a lot of it was going to go over my head, etc. And I remember she said to just power through for 10 days, just force-feed the words into my eyes for 10 straight days, and let myself feel confused and stupid if that's the case, but just keep reading. Things will start to trickle in, she said. You'll start understanding things without realizing that you understand them. You'll start noticing patterns in the news. The same names will start popping up again and again, and you'll start to see that they are usually embroiled in the same situations. They're doing the same kinds of things. Read the news for a few days, and suddenly you'll start hearing politicians' names, and you're just going to start saying to yourself, isn't he the guy who's in trouble for doing this or saying that? And so now suddenly you're going to have a burgeoning awareness of what your representatives are all about and what their responsibilities are and the limitations of their power. She says it's like starting a new class. When you start the new class, you don't know anybody. If I told you to go home and learn everything about these people, you wouldn't know where to begin. It would, it would be an impossible task. But over the course of that first quarter, you start to see how they behave and you see the questions that they ask and the clothes that they wear. You start to get an idea of what they're like. And the same thing will happen with the characters in the news. I mean, obviously she didn't say all that stuff verbatim, but that was the gist of what she was saying. What I remember re with resounding clarity is that she said 10 days. Read the news for 10 days and see if on the 11th you don't understand everything that's going on better than you did on the 1st. And so I did. I did exactly that. I read the Herald for 10 straight days and yeah, she was right. But then I stopped reading it because I guess I had instilled a completion date in my head and then I just couldn't push myself beyond it. The point is, the teacher was right. The accumulation of knowledge was gradual and subtle, but it was happening. Anyways, here I am, stressing about the same nonsense, like stricken with terror and fumbling for my inhaler at the prospect of not growing up to be Umberto fucking Echo. Umberto Echo. It's, it's absurd, and I'm telling myself... It's, it's ridiculous. I'm telling myself that I'm some kind of contemptible, semi-literate troglodyte because, what, I don't have something to journal about when I'm half drunk? I enjoy The New Yorker, and when I'm reading it, I'm having a good time. Am I necessarily as well-read and as rounded and as smart as I would like to be? No. Do I believe that if I was as, you know, funny and rounded and smart as someone like Umberto Eco, bartenders would maybe like me a little bit more? Yes, I'm convinced of that. But for all the times that I've said something that sounded smart or incisive, um, it's never... It's never proven to elicit a smile from these bartenders so readily as the times that I came at them with a joke, or when I brought them a colada from next door, or a compliment, or good wishes. So, what's my point here? Well, I wish that I was smarter than I am, yes, and that I could dazzle people with all those smarts, but far as personal experience has taught me anything, it's that one's reputation is probably better served by being friendly than being brilliant, and that knowledge probably comes to you slowly, and from many different directions, and very, very quietly. He just like <laughs> he just showed up to this Thursday meeting <laughs> with a briefcase full of shit. <laughs> and he just walked into this music. Like, I think you'll be very satisfied with this quarter's earnings. <laughs> you open it up. <laughs> the first guy goes, "What the fuck?" And <laughs> you, you, you found this briefcase. <laughs> He found this briefcase! He put it in your yard 
And every day you go outside and you just sit in it and you close it. The next day you just come back and you do it for six days. <laughs> and you go to the meeting. <laughs> Your car. <laughs> you have it with you. <laughs> And now we go to the mail. Japonica from LA writes, Dear Thousand Movie Project, I'm kind of angry, to tell you the truth, and as ridiculous as it sounds, I'm not entirely sure why. I'm angry at my teachers, angry at politics, angry at my friends sometimes, and even people I don't know. What's been a huge consolation, though, is watching movies where people just kind of break things, where they make a point of pulling back the curtain on society or on people's bullshit, Fight Club and Taxi Driver are two of the obvious movies that um, that feel kind of angry in the same way that I am. Can you recommend movies along this wavelength? Best wishes, Japonica. Thanks, Japonica. If you're feeling kind of pissed and looking for something to watch that's going to mirror your anger and maybe clarify it, I think you'll see lots of shit in the French New Wave of the 1960s and in the American indie scene of the 1970s that'll show you what people can accomplish when they just pick up a camera, some friends, some angry thoughts, and decide to make art. There's a chatty little movie called My Life to Live by Jean-Luc Godard that I think would go pretty well with your situation. Bonnie and Clyde is another one. Uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Falling Down, starring Mike Douglas and Robert Duvall, will probably ring your bell for sure. The Devil's Rejects is another one. A, a different stripe of, you know, movie nihilism, but it's up there. I think you'll find that the subgenre of, like, fuck the system is a pretty robust one. Any one of these movies, if you watch it and then start reading up on it, it's going to lead you to movies that are just like it. What I think you'll tend to find, though, in movies that really capture anger in, like, a profound and resonant way, is that they don't usually end well. I mean, for the characters. I totally understand the resentment you feel toward, like, the artifice of authority figures and social conventions, and I know very well the horror of looking at all the people who cast judgment, who tell you, like, where to go and what you ought to do, and feeling that their own, like, tepid, stupid, spiceless lives are a sample of what your own future is going to be. Like that you are condemned to lead the kind of life that they are leading because they're the ones who are pulling the reins. But, if I can give you some unsolicited advice about how to actually live through that anger, I would suggest that you be mindful about not mistaking calm for conformity. You don't need to rage against the machine all day in order to fight it. Anger, more often than not, is sadness with its back against the wall. And I suggest looking for movies that maybe help you identify the thing that's got you so down. It's been my experience that if you go around carrying a dozen different torches to fight a dozen different causes, you're going to end up setting yourself on fire. If you saturate yourself in art that was forged out of anger, you might see your anger validated, and that's a very good feeling. It's like a hand to hold in the dark. But what might be just as valuable is watching stuff about how to live with that anger, how to curb it, how to find beauty and comfort despite the boredom and the disappointment and the injustice and the rage. For this, I would recommend something like Harold and Maude from 1971. Woody Allen's Crimes and Misdemeanors is a good one. Same with Fellini's Knights of Cabiria from 1957. Synecdoche, New York is a movie that's only about a decade old, and I think that'll do a kind of emotional violence on you. Shit's rough out there, I know. And while it's nice from time to time to watch movies that reaffirm and validate your anger, I suggest that you chase each one of them with a movie about how people manage, despite all of those frustrations, to keep at it, maybe even to find a way to smile. Let me know when you get around to them. We're watching the Bill Gates thing, and we're just seeing how horrible the world is. Basically, if you pee or shit anywhere, it's gonna get into the like the sources of water, and it's just terrible. And we were just we just talking about like 
how I would take a shit in this circumstance. I would just, I would just shit in a briefcase and I would just toss it somewhere, and then just forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, throw it on the side of the road. <laughs> it's in a briefcase, it'll be fine. <laughs> so, so, we just talked about this idea of a briefcase full of shit. <laughs> Where you just go to, this, you go to a board meeting at some major company, some major public company, and you have a briefcase full of shit. <laughs> and you open it. <laughs> And that's how you quit. That's how you quit. You just say, I'm done. <laughs> Fuck this place. Fuck all this. There's a cozy little dive bar in Pinecrest with blacked out windows and a pool table where for a couple of years, I was one of like a dozen nightly regulars. And there was another regular at this time uh, who came in a little less often than the rest of us, maybe once or twice a week, but she was you know, liked and embraced and she was treated like one of the dailies. Her name was Cindy and Cindy was very flirtatious. She was very short and she had this kind of authoritative repose. Cindy would ask you a question and then while you were answering, she'd be smiling as if she just put you on a path toward doing something you didn't know you were going to do. And she wore tank tops and very little makeup and she was always making jokes about how she dressed for comfort and about not caring how she looked. But in fact, Cindy was very pretty and she was very fit and I think the thing of ridiculing her outfit was part of her flirting strategy. Like in case you weren't already looking at her body, this was her way of prompting you to do so. I never saw her go home with one of the regulars, but she did flirt with them a lot. And if at the end of the night you saw her making out with somebody in a booth, it was usually somebody young and new to the bar, and you weren't likely to ever see him again. Or, or at least not with Cindy. So one night, kind of soon after I started going there on a regular basis, Sydney gave me what everybody called the treatment. She clip-clopped up to me in her crocs, and she asked what I was reading, and she was very friendly and flirty, and she was, you know, touching my arm a lot, and then at one point she rested her head on my shoulder, and, and we just, over the course of, I don't know, a half hour or so, we just bantered. When it was time for me to walk home, she asked if I needed a ride, and I told her no. And she hooked her arms really tight around my neck, and she planted this long, wet kiss on my cheek and had this little sarcastic moan to inflect it. I never really got the treatment again after that, uh, though I was henceforth included in her, her round of hellos whenever she came into the bar. A couple weeks later, I was sitting with a, another regular, and I said, uh, you know, I think Cindy was making a pass at me the other night. And he just nodded and said, yeah, she does that. The guy I'm talking to is Ken, and Ken is an absolute shark at pool, and he makes a little money that way too, right here at the bar, even though the management discourages it. He used to do something pertaining to home security, but uh, he had an accident on the job and he won a settlement recently and is now pretty comfortably unemployed. Or com comfortable with respect to money, at least. A local dive bar, however, is nothing if not a rumor mill. And there were whispers about Ken having PTSD and some medical cocktail that kept him up late at night. Some people said Ken got violent during these late night torpors, and others said he got weepy. And those who were the most dependable just kind of, when you ask them about it, they just kind of shook their head about it in a real somber way. Ken's wife is a math teacher at a nearby middle school, and each night, like a ritual, she sits among the women and starts off with a martini and then joins her husband and tapers off into Miller Lights. On my days off, I would notice that Ken, though, though he was not a very heavy drinker, would arrive at the bar about two hours before his wife. So I'm sitting with Ken at the bar and we're talking about Cindy, and he's telling me ba what I've basically told you. He tells me she's a very sweet person, that she flirts mostly for sport, um, but he said too that she has actually 
gone home with a few of these semi-regulars, if not the people who show up daily. His eyes go wide and he shakes his head and he goes, that woman is a freak. I say, how so? Ken looks over both shoulders, makes sure she isn't around, and then he leans forward on the bar in like a huddle, and he says, you haven't heard about the box? He says that back at her apartment in Palmetto Bay, Cindy's got a big, heavy, brown cardboard box, the kind of thing that a big kitchen appliance might come in. And here's the thing about the big cardboard box. Cindy likes to have sex in the big cardboard box. And I think about it for a minute, and then I ask him, uh, is it a deep box, like for a fridge, or is it shallow, like, like for a dryer? I don't know, he says. But more than one guy's come back here talking about Cindy and her fucking cardboard box. What Cindy does, apparently, is she gets hot and heavy with this guy that she's brought home, which whoever it is, and, you know, maybe takes things up to third base. And then, like, right before sex, she, you know, looks up from the guy's lap or whatever, and she throws him a little smile, and she tells him, I've got this kink. Which, of course, the, the guy is totally down to indulge at this point. He just wants to sort of get to business. So, you know, Cindy asks formally if, if, if the guy's willing to play along. And, you know, of course, every guy's like, sure, sure, I'm open-minded, whatever, let's do it. Whereupon Cindy apparently disappears into the closet and then comes lumbering out of it, half-naked, bear-hugging a giant cardboard box. What I'm asking Ken, though, is, like, does she want the guy to crawl into the box with her, like a, like a fort, so that they can have a kind of claustrophobic missionary? Or does she kind of, like, crawl into the box on all fours, and then, like, the guy's on his knees outside of it, and they do it from behind? Turns out it's the latter. I ask a few more questions, and it turns out, you know, according to Ken, that Cindy's kink is kind of like a consensual non-consent kind of thing. It's, it's about punishment and reprimand and degradation. I ask him if she always uses the same box. I tell him because I figured the box would get wet and gross, like especially if she's using it over and over. Ken drains his beer and shrugs and stands up and he starts rummaging his pockets for quarters. You need five quarters to play pool, incidentally. He tells me, Alex, all I know is that she likes to fuck in a box. I don't know what kind of box. I don't know how many boxes. So I, 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 the timetable is, is blurry. I, I, it was either a few weeks or a few months go by. And I'm talking with another regular one night when um, Cindy comes over. She does her rounds of hugs and hellos. And she goes with two friends over to, to play darts. I'm sitting at that moment with uh, someone we'll call Kelly. Kelly is in her late 50s and she sells real estate in like a half-hearted, non-committal way. So like I said, Cindy uh, Cindy comes in, she says hello, she starts walking away to play darts, and Kelly, kind of like Ken did, she leans forward on the bar as soon as Cindy is out of earshot, and she whispers to me, that girl is a nut. I say, who, you Cindy? Kelly nods in this wide-eyed, troubled way. She keeps a pack of cigarettes on the bar, and she goes to smoke one every 20 minutes or so. And sometimes, if she's not smoking, she'll just set her fingertips very gently on the carton, as if for reassurance. And then she'll, you know, blink a few times and move her hand away like she didn't realize she was doing it. Kelly is the only person I know over the age of 25 who still drinks Fireball. It's a strong cinnamon whiskey with the consistency basically of, of like a, a thin syrup. Fireball is served cold to begin with, but Kelly asks the bartender to chill a rocks glass for her to make it extra cold. She drinks her Fireball neat, but she always asks for two cherries with it, which nobody understands because the, the, the cherries don't contribute anything to the flavor of the drink, and she also, she doesn't eat the cherries at the end of the drink. And if you ask her, Kelly, why don't you eat the cherries, she'll look at you like you're crazy and she'll be like, because they taste like fireball. It makes no fucking sense. She also always asks for a couple of those little black cocktail straws, and she stirs the cherries around while she talks. I think it's a nervous thing, the stirring of the cherries. But yeah, so we're talking about Cindy. She says, Cindy's a nut, and she says, uh, you, have you heard about the sex thing? Her sex thing? And I nod, and I lift my drink. Kelly's just shaking her head about it. How can you tell me somebody likes to get fucked in a dog cage? I almost choke on my drink. Dog cage? I thought, I thought it was, I thought she was a box. Kelly shakes her head and looks mournfully down into her cherries. The box got wet. I, that's what I said to Ken. I said the box must get wet. She's got to have several boxes. Kelly says, well, it's not several boxes. She's upgraded. It's a, it's a cage thing now. It's a dog crate. 
And, you know, the mention of the dog crate thing sounds interesting, and so I just kind of sit there and nod to myself. And as I'm doing that, Kelly, like, leans away and grimaces, and she goes, don't tell me that turns you on. And I shrug. It doesn't turn me off. Kelly does this this thing of scoffing and shaking her head. It's, it's what she does when she's fighting off a new idea. And I was drunk at the time, and I wasn't able to make my point, so let me do it now, years later, because it's exactly what I should have told Kelly while she grumbled into her fireball, which is this. I love dating people with kinks. Clearly defined, accessible, confident kinks. You know what's great about sleeping with somebody who's really kinky? They tell you what they want. And this is across genders, it's across body types, it's across all demographics. Find yourself a sweet and confident little kinkster, and you will have the best sex of your life. I love nothing more than to date somebody who's like, spit my hair, smack my ass, and call me Martha Stewart. Because that person is giving you a roadmap to their orgasm. Here's what happens. Your kinky-ass partner tells you what they want, and then you do the thing that they want, and then your partner is satisfied, and they're happy. And if your partner is satisfied and happy, that shit is contagious. And the best sex on earth is rivaled only by when you get to roll over after it's done, and you pick up a bag of Chex Mix and a bottle of Jameson off the floor, and then you just pass the bottle and the bag back and forth, and you talk and with this very cool sexual person who's now very pleased with you. So I think it's the best shit in the world when someone has a weird kink and they tell me exactly what it is, and then I can do it. And then they're super happy about it. If you've got to put on a fucking tool belt and a fake mustache to make it happen? Who gives a fuck? You're here to please. I think it's wonderful that Cindy says on the first date, she brings somebody home and she says, listen, I'm gonna get in this cage and you're gonna fuck me in it. You know what Cindy's partners probably never have to do? They probably never have to puzzle over what she wants because Cindy will tell you what she wants. God bless Cindy, the confident kinkster, and may we all be so fortunate as to find our own cages and the people who want to crawl inside them with us. You worked your ass off. You're like a VP. You're a board member. You're in it, man. Like, you're making money over fist. You got at least a, you know, multi-million dollar salary. You're, you're like the fucking ch chief technology officer. You just walk in with a freaking full of shit. <laughs> yeah, here. This is what you get. <laughs> I haven't had a good laugh like that in a long time. And now it's back to the mail. Gypsum from Indiana writes, Dear Thousand Movie Project, Why don't you ever seem to talk about movies on the podcast? I'm a big fan of your movie essays on thousandmovieproject.com, but a little puzzled about why you seem to use the podcast to talk about seemingly everything but movies. Keep up the good work, and P.S., chicken quesadillas are among my favorite foods, too. Thanks for writing in, Kropenicki. And I can see why you might be a little mystified about why Thousand Movie Project Podcast says so little about movies. But look at it this way. When I was in first grade, I had a classmate named Crystal. Uh, I was, at the time, obsessed with the concept of the Tooth Fairy, pro and probably mainly because I was, I was kind of ashamed at having not yet lost any baby teeth of my own. On the day after losing her first tooth, Crystal came into school carrying that little pale trophy inside of a pink plastic case that clipped onto her backpack. And she would take the tooth out and she would show it off to people. She was so proud, understandably, and she was slated that night to get a visit from the Tooth Fairy, while I, such a slow developer, had to stand on the sideline and just watch everyone rake in this cash, unless I took some action. Kripenike, I stole her tooth. I swear to God, I have never told this story in my life, and it is 100% true. I stole Crystal's first baby tooth. I took it home, I put it under my pillow in secret, and I woke up the next morning and I found 
no money under my pillow, which was shocking. But so I was thinking it over, and I remember I deduced that the Tooth Fairy, I I had conceived of the Tooth Fairy as being like this ravenous tooth-collecting, like almost vampiric, like she needed these teeth. But now, having put this tooth under my pillow and not received a visit, not received any money, I realized that, much like Santa, there was a morals clause to my dynamic with the Tooth Fairy, to everyone's dynamic. I figured that the Tooth Fairy knew that this was a stolen tooth and that she begrudged me the crime. And so I panicked. And in that panic, I flushed Crystal's baby tooth down the toilet. Only afterward did I think, fuck, I should have just returned the tooth. And I used to feel, up until not too long ago, I've always felt really bad about having not returned the tooth. But now, years later, I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Because how badly fucked up would poor Crystal have been to open that little pink case after her tooth's disappearance and find that not only had someone stolen her tooth, they brought it back. They were done with it. She would have freaked the fuck out. And would a seven-year-old have thought, oh, somebody must have stolen it, taken it home, uh, and, and tried to steal my tooth fairy money and then brought it back and returned it? Of course not. She would have thought it was ghosts. She would have spent the rest of her life puzzling about it. Anyway, a year later, I, um, I lost my first tooth. And I told my folks about it, and they were like, all right, gotta, you know, put that tooth under your pillow. The tooth fairy's gonna come. They mentioned the tooth fairy, and I was like, oh, fuck. Because now I figured the Tooth Fairy knows what a fucking creepy little thief I am, and she's not going to show up. And then in the morning when I don't have any money to show my parents, they're going to be super suspicious. But also, my dad was a judge at the time, and, and he knew the law. So I figured that he, he, he you know, was going to be familiar with the case of, like, Mackenzie v. Fairy, where it was determined that the fairy need not remunerate a child who hath stolen the tooth of a classmate. I was afraid, basically, that I was going to be outed as a tooth stealer. But so I put the tooth under my pillow, I went to sleep, I woke up in the morning, and there was a $5 bill under my pillow. I was raised in a godless home, as you can probably tell, but I had this tenuous understanding of how Christ was known to be very very forgiving, or whatever. Like, I knew from movies what confession was. But so after that, there was probably a solid, I would say, two years, where in the private trenches of my child brain, I regarded the tooth fairy as being basically more forgiving than Christ. There was uh, there was uh, there were two years where I attributed to the tooth fairy the same degree of reverence generally accorded to Jesus Christ of Nazareth or as he's known to his friends Jim Kropenicki, I hope this answers your question goes another episode. So this episode was supposed to be done um, a few days ago, but I was in a rush with it because I was kind of embarrassed of the previous episode, um, which is the only one of its type, and I hope will stay the only one of its type. I, I, whenever I'm in the car, I like talk to myself and make noises and and do voices. Yeah, I, like it makes me laugh, and sometimes I end up cracking up at, at shit that I say to myself in the car. And then so this that last episode was the first one where I was like, you know what? Let me. Just record it. Surely everyone else will find this hilarious. But what was interesting is, like, people that I didn't know listened to the podcast legit, like, hit me up and were like, yeah, don't do that again. Not in a mean way, not in a vindictive way, just gentle coaching, which I appreciate. Um, But yeah, the, uh, the opening bit about Umberto Eco and 
feeling kind of dumb. I know, the, the the intelligence question, like, am I as smart as I should be at, at this point, at this age, um, it, it has been kind of weighing on me lately. Some of, uh, some of it is because I've, I've sent out another batch of, I think, 10 queries for the Thousand Movie Project book. I'm supposed to take it that seven agents have rejected it already because, but I didn't hear back from any of them, and they all said, um, if you don't hear back from us in six weeks, it means we're not interested. But I did get one rejection, and yeah, I don't think, yeah, and I don't really take them personally anymore. I, I realize that um, the agents aren't really commenting on the quality of your work so much as its marketability. But then, you know, because I have to keep sending out these samples to agents, it's prompting me to constantly look at the few pages. I mean, I've written like 50 page, the first 50 pages of the book, including an introduction. And so I keep going over it, and I'm like, is this interesting? I, I have no idea. Is this well written? Um, it's it's troubling but there yeah there's that question that kind of gets to me about like to what to what degree is your intelligence a matter of like genetics and you just you know were born with certain intellectual capacities and then how much of your intelligence is a product of work ethic like how much knowledge can you cultivate just out of like discipline and study um stuff like that and what i guess i was getting at with that first segment is that i shouldn't beat myself up about it and just just cultivate certain tendencies, certain practices, and slowly some benefits will accrue. Um, I, so yeah, it's, it's kind of been hard to do work on the project this past month. I didn't watch, I watched one movie for the project in all of September. It's now four days into October and I haven't watched anything, but I did, and like, I didn't post any blog and oh, fuck, I don't know what the fuck. I've just been kind of out of it. And it's, I, I think part of it is not doing work for the ghost writer lately and um I, I i my paycheck went down um at the college so money has been tight and so for the past um few days i've been uh, applying to jobs i've been applying to various media positions at local news stations uh, which has been interesting it had never before crossed my mind that i would do that and lately because I, i've been working so much on the podcast i'm i've gotten kind of savvy with sound editing and um just general production stuff so i've been applying to podcast gigs um there are a bunch of businesses that are looking to make their own podcast and so i'm applying to those but then this is another thing similar to querying agents and trying to get an agent i send out a stack of paperwork to agents and the paperwork reflects like a lot a lot a lot of my time and effort and my sensibility and my personality and it's met almost uniformly with silence and then the same thing happens on a different front with the job applications. And you send out your resume and maybe you're maybe writing samples to these places and um, you just don't hear back. And so there's this weird feeling of remove. And it's like, am I, am I here? Am I, 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 I know I'm here and I don't mean to, it's not a feeling of being disenfranchised or anything. It's just, um, I don't know, doing a bunch of work and then sending it out and it's just not even acknowledged. And again, I'm totally sympathetic to the the fact that they can't acknowledge everything, but I, I don't know. Something that did kind of pick me up, though, and I feel like I'm maybe rising out of this slump, is um, last night, Last night, the hosts of Better Let Me Tell You um, posted the interview, posted the episode in which I was interviewed. And I had a great time with them. I, I really enjoyed it, and I was terrified about how the, inter the, the interview would turn out. And I've listened to it twice, once at like 1 in the morning, um, and then again at like eight as I was walking to the coffee shop. And it's interesting to see, I, but what I realize is like, I have like six observations, like six insights at all, into in, into life, into anything. And I was interviewed for an FIU student media thing recently, and I feel like I said a lot of the same things. And now that FIU interview is coming out on Monday, so I feel like, 
I'm, I'm dreading that they might be too similar. And as I was, as I was listening to our conversation um, a second time, I came to appreciate how the hosts, DJ and Ishmael, are, are such good interviewers. What I'm realizing is that uh, being an interviewer is a blend of like facilitating a monologue, like evoking a monologue from your subject and occasionally turning it into a conversation. So what I mean by that is like a person goes on a 20 second riff about something and you have to listen closely and look look for the little thing that they mention somewhere in those 20 seconds that you almost just repeat it to them and it will prompt them to expound for 40 seconds and then you find a little kernel of something in there and you you feed it back to them uh, and that, that makes them go on for maybe five minutes. And then I guess, and then maybe every now and then to uh, keep them from feeling self-conscious. Like, I think I mentioned like two or three times in, in the interview that I'm ranting. Um, well, like, I, I just feel awkward to be taking up so much of somebody's time with, with, with talk. Anyways, um, I had, I did also, re I, I'm preparing Felicio Knightley for the podcast in three episodes. And I had reco I've recorded and completely edited what would be the first one. And I was going to attach it to the tail end of this podcast, but it's like 22 minutes. And I don't really want to make hour-long podcasts. So anyways, yeah, I, I, I guess the next episode, unless it explodes into something larger than I intend, is going gonna, is gonna to have the first part of Felicio Knightley, which I'm super anxious about like putting out there. I don't know why. I think just reading fiction into the mic, it feels strange. Anyways, I'm taking up a long time. But before I go, I wanted to mention that if you want to write into the show and have your mail read on the air, you can um, send me a message. You can send me a message through the um, Thousand Movie Project Instagram, or you can... Um, there is a formal thing on the website. There's a tab at the top of the screen that says talk to me, and you can uh, submit something there. Anyways, I'm off. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. See you next time. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to follow us on Facebook, on Instagram, and to check out our blog posts every day at www.thousandmovieproject.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can always throw some money at Thousand Movie Project on PayPal or Venmo, or you can buy one of our two ebooks, Horny Nuns and The Ballad of Felicio Knightley, which both cost a buck and are both available on Amazon.com. And remember, while you're at it, to have a nice day.